So, to start off, let's just simply define what a vaccination is. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a vaccine is a preparation of killed microorganisms, living attenuated organisms, or living fully virulent organisms that is administered to produce or artificially increase immunity to a particular disease. Whew, that's a lot of words. So we'll break it down for you. Vaccines involve the tiny creatures that are implicated in the diseases that you're trying to prevent. Now why would you purposely put those things in your body? Are you trying to keep them from harming you in the first place? Well, hold your many horses, folks, because it's actually more complicated than you'd think. Our bodies are these stunning machines that have their very own powerful armies called the immune system. Now, you've probably heard all about this in your 6th grade biology class, but we'll give you a general summary of how it works anyways. The human body is made to protect itself from the hazards of its environment. That's why you shiver when you feel cold, and why you flinch when you suddenly hear an uncommonly loud noise. Although you don't see it, your body is constantly fighting the tiny creatures that enter your system through any of your natural or unnatural openings. These minuscule invaders carry markers called antigens. When your immune system attacks these foreign bodies, they keep a memory of those antigens so that they can mount up a response more quickly the next time these creatures dare show up. The concept of vaccines takes advantage of this mechanism by introducing the microorganisms in small amounts that are just effective enough to initiate an immune response but not actually cause the disease. Pretty clever, right? Okay, so what is herd immunity then? If you think about it, many of us live in relatively large communities. A lot of us have seen the flu being spread around among friends, co-workers, family members, and unfortunately even ourselves. Herd immunity means that a high proportion of individuals in a population are immune to a disease, which lessens or prevents the spread of that disease to people who aren't immune. Think of babies who are too young to have developed a strong enough immune system to get vaccinated, or people who have immune disorders. The more people that are vaccinated, the bigger the herd immunity, and the more contained a disease becomes. But what about autism? We asked several people about their opinion on this idea of a connection between vaccines and autism. Meet Brendan. I don't think there's any correlation between vaccines and autism. I think that's ridiculous that people would ever believe that. And I think people buy into that because people are superstitious and afraid and uh, don't want to be educated in, in those circumstances. Now, here's what Kelly has to say. I don't think it's true. Um, I've not seen any data that fully supports that. Um, I've seen some that's been presented and then debunked, um, but I don't think so. I think that there's too many benefits to vaccines and there's mm -hmm. not enough knowledge on autism, period. Lastly, here's what an anonymous responder said. I personally do not believe vaccinations and autism have any correlation. I think many people buy into it simply due to a lack of education on the matter. Many people will believe what you tell them, especially when it comes to the medical field, because people believe it's over their heads, so they just want to take your word as truth. We also did a survey on this question. Out of 83 responses, 71 believe that there isn't a correlation between autism and vaccinations. Six believe that there is, and six have no opinion. Finally. According to an article in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, published by Eggerston in 2010, a journal called The Lancet retracted its publication that stated that the measles, mumps, and rubella, also known as MMR, vaccine was linked to autism. 
The reason for retraction was that the original paper contained several incorrect elements after investigation. The children studied were carefully selected and some were even funded by lawyers acting for parents who were involved in lawsuits against vaccines. This highly publicized paper by Dr. Andrew was the catalyst for the belief that autism is caused by vaccines. It's also helpful to note that according to WebMD, at least 12 separate follow-up studies were done, none of which found evidence that the vaccine caused autism. Okay, okay, okay. So based on what we've told you so far, it appears that these interviews, survey, and articles point to one common conclusion. Vaccines are not connected to autism. So now that that's out of the way, what's the deal with the flu shot? Here's Brenton again. Uh, get a flu shot because I don't want the flu. I feel like that's pretty simple. Now let's listen to Hannah's input. I do get a flu shot for basically the same reasons that I do get vaccinated. Not only do they protect myself against terrible diseases, they also protect others who maybe can't get vaccines for health reasons. And here's a quote from another anonymous responder. I did get a flu shot this year. The main reason I got the flu shot is because I work at a hospital and they require you to get it. But even if I didn't work at a hospital, I would still get it. I've gotten it every year with no side effects and I have never once gotten the flu. Many people think it's ineffective, but with how contagious the flu is, I just don't want to risk being around people I may or may not know and end up getting the flu. Better to be safe than sorry. In the same survey as before, we also asked people whether they get flu shots. Out of 53 responses, 19 said yes, 23 said no, and 11 said sometimes. We also asked if they thought flu shots were effective. Out of 34 responses, 22 said yes and 12 said no. As you can see, although most people don't think autism and vaccinations are connected, they seem pretty torn about getting a flu shot. We don't really know why this is. People tend to have different reasons. Maybe it might be a hassle to get one, or maybe they don't like needles. As stated before, maybe they simply think it's ineffective. In order to investigate this last point, we looked at the Osterholm and Kali's 2012 meta-analysis of 12 studies regarding the effectiveness of influenza vaccines. A meta-analysis is a review of several similar studies that compiles each of their results to make a statistically valid conclusion. According to this meta-analysis, seasonal influenza vaccines have been reported to be 70-90% to 90 effective in the prevention of influenza in healthy adults when the vaccines are well-matched to the circulating strain. In other words, flu shots are effective when the vaccine matches the strain of the flu that is spreading at that time. In another study by Jackson and colleagues in 2017, it was found that the effectiveness of the vaccine against any flu illness was 48%. Now, these numbers might not seem convincing to you, but remember that we're trying to figure out whether flu shots are actually effective. Based on this data, flu shots have been statistically shown to be effective. Now, you still might not be assured that it's worth it, but do you remember when we talked about herd immunity a few minutes ago? Think about it. Let's say that everyone in a group of 100 people got a flu shot that we know is 48 to 90% effective according to the studies we mentioned before. Worst case scenario, according to those numbers, 48 of those people would be safe from the flu. But the best case scenario would be that 90 of those people would be protected. That means that out of those 100 people, only 10 would get the flu that season. Seems like a pretty good deal, right? Okay, so we're fully aware that we threw all of this information at you, and you're probably thinking, why does it matter? 
Well, we know that you want the best for yourself and your friends and your family. So we gave you all of this information so that you can make your own informed decisions about your health. Time and time again, scientific studies have shown that vaccines are effective in protecting people from all of these dreadful diseases. We are at a point where illnesses that we once thought were finally contained with vaccines, like polio, are re-emerging and taking the lives of innocent individuals. It's up to people like you and me to make the right decisions so we don't end up reversing all of this progress that our global society has worked tirelessly for. So, what will you decide? back everyone my name is Samantha and today we are going to cover conspiracy theories is Ted Cruz the Zodiac Killer did Bush do 9-11 is Nicolas Cage an immortal these are just some of the questions you might ponder at 4 a.m. after a couple of drinks but what about these conspiracy theories entice us so much that we make memes reddits blogs internet rants YouTube videos and write articles on them what even is a conspiracy theory? How does it spread and what are the effects? Recently, we asked a sample of 56 college students about some of their beliefs regarding conspiracy theories. 46% of those surveyed held a belief in at least one conspiracy theory, while 54 said they did not believe in any. While the majority of people did say that they did not believe in a conspiracy theory, 46% is still a large population of what I like to call believers. So what is a conspiracy theory? We can all name a couple of examples of some funky conspiracy theories we've seen floating around the internet, but defining a conspiracy theory is a little more trying. In this podcast, we are going to focus on the three things that make up a conspiracy theory. One, they locate the source of an unusual social and political phenomenon in unseen, intentional, and malevolent forces. For example, Big political leaders are actually evil lizard overlords in disguise. We see you, Queen Elizabeth. Second, they typically interpret political events in terms of a struggle between good and evil. For example, people believe that the government has the cure for AIDS but doesn't want to share it with the public. Third, and the last point, most suggest that mainstream accounts of political events are a ruse or an attempt to distract the public from a hidden source of power. An example of this, which is a conspiracy theory I'm sure you've all heard of, is those regarding the moon landing. Did it happen? Did it not? A lot of people still aren't sure. So what else makes a conspiracy theory a conspiracy theory? We have an idea of what a conspiracy theory is, but how does it spread? Where does it all begin? For some conspiracy theories, the origin is none other than a person, or what we call a conspiracy entrepreneur. One famous example of this would be the French author Harry Misson, whose book 9-11, The Big Lie, speculates that the Pentagon explosion was actually caused by a missile. Now, there are many theories around the 9-11 attack, but the most popular on college campuses, Bush did 9-11. I can almost guarantee that if you look hard enough in any college town bar, you can find this written on a wall somewhere. 
Now I'm going to hand it over to Amanda. Sam, but why do these conspiracy theories stick? Usually it's because after bad things happen, like a terrorist attack or an airplane crash or a presidential assassination, we look for answers. For example, after Princess Diana's death in 1997, the sketchy details surrounding her death led to several different conspiracy theories regarding what actually happened and whether or not it was actually an accident. This is a clearly a well-known conspiracy theory because in our survey, when asked what conspiracy theory first came to mind, Princess Diana's death was the most popular answer. Also, when asked directly if they believed in the conspiracy theory, 74% believed that the theories were true, while 26% did not believe in them. When someone has little knowledge on an event, they are more susceptible to believe in something like a conspiracy theory, because it gives us the answer to these unsolvable questions. But which theories we accept all depend on what we want to hold true, and what we reject to find an equilibrium amongst our own beliefs. So, what beliefs do you hold or reject? Personally, I have always been intrigued by the multiple conspiracy theories surrounding John F. Kennedy. There are several different closely held beliefs regarding the JFK assassination, including that there were actually multiple shooters, that Vice President Lyndon Johnson was actually the mastermind behind the killing, or more recently, that Ted Cruz's father was involved. Personally, I find the multiple shooters conspiracy compelling. No matter how many times I hear it explained, I do not see how one shooter was able to take all of those shots and hit a moving target so perfectly. Apparently, I'm not the only one interested in all of this because after asking 56 college students, 35% of them said they believed in at least one of these JFK conspiracies. Okay, so how do conspiracy theories affect our world? Once you decide on your belief, whether it be that the Earth is flat or that the Illuminati exists, how does it affect you? They allow the opportunity for people to question the status quo, to find hiccups and flaws in the established hierarchy. They can reveal anomalies or inconsistencies in official accounts, and they allow for a debate. Conspiracy theories allow for individuals to ask questions, and that's a rare thing nowadays. It helps make communities, even though some may be a tad bit extreme. They can give a sense of belonging and confirmation of your beliefs that, yeah, maybe there is a spaghetti monster god which could be comforting and is generally pretty fun. However you feel about conspiracy theories, public opinion seems to suggest that they should be discussed in a psychological sense. Our recent survey showed that 72% of people believe that conspiracy theories should be studied in a psychology class, while only 28% said that they should not. So, conspiracy theories, coming to a psych class near you.
As we explore cults and religion, their intersections and differences, it's important to note that not all have the same characteristics. This muddies their definition as well as the distinction between a cult and a religion. Many cults model themselves after religious doctrines. This overlap is clear. Experts use new religious movement as another name for cult. Some have even gone far enough to claim that nothing more than popularity and power separate cults from normal religions. The application of this term is prejudice and practice. Others claim that cults are distinct from religion in their level of danger. However, it's easy to consider counterpoints to this perspective. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the French-Catholic-Protestant Wars, the Thirty Years' War, Taping Rebellion, the Sudanese Civil War, India's Hindu-Muslim riots, and contemporary terrorism. It's just as easy to consider defined cults that do not fit the malevolent stereotypes such as Hare Krishna. Anti-cultists have been unable to make an academically supported case for new religions being particularly prone to generate any more psychological damage to their members than other religious groups. But this opinion is widely held. An easy-to-consider counterpoint would be the Roman Catholic Church sex scandal. In the 1960s, J. Milton Yinger defined a cult as a small, short-lived group with deviant beliefs and practices and focused on a dominant leader. This view of cults particularly emphasizes the adoption of different sexual ethics. This might include arranged marriages, polygamy, pedophilia, or free love, violent or illegal behavior such as homicide, suicide, brutality, fraud or drug use, a communal life, often including separatism, a distinctive diet such as veganism or macrobiotics, or medical restrictions like no doctors or blood transfusions, and the espousing of apocalyptic beliefs about the end of the world. How a belief system is viewed, whether as a religion or a cult, depends on the culture. Complaints relating to the culture of cults include conservative approaches to the role of women, a perceived foreignness, racial exclusiveness, and authoritarian leadership. Since Christianity is the dominant religion in North America, Western austeric groups are viewed as cults. This distinction is defined by the church's attitudes toward the less primary belief system. For the sake of explanation, we're referring to a church as an established or dominant religious body. Principles do not just apply to westernized cultures. Established religious bodies dominate the landscape in other countries. Hanafi Islam in Egypt, Wahhabi Islam in Bahrain, Shafi'it Islam in Indonesia, Orthodox Judaism in Israel, Theravada Buddhism in Sri Lanka, just to name a few. No primary belief systems can be considered cults or deemed sects or ethnic religions depending on their relationship with the primary church. Ethnic religions operate outside the religious establishment but will not become churches. They are seen by the establishment as somewhat analogous to churches as long as they continue to limit their activity to their own ethnic constituency. In the West, these would be those groups that are not Christian, but which serve a particular minority ethnic constituency. The most obvious example being large Jewish synagogue associations. They are not cults because despite different and often conflicting ideas, their existence do not threaten the beliefs of the church. Their recruitment methods are less aggressive and they do not uncomfortably challenge the status quo. Churches view sex as different from them, but acknowledge their sameness and familiarity. They're typically Jewish and Christian groups with stricter practices than the established church. There are variations of a fundamental sameness that does not threaten the church. 
New sex can typically complain about the inflexibility of older sex. This camaraderie is starkly different from the church's attitude toward beliefs deemed cultist. This can be seen when leaders in more secularized churches publicly admire constituents of sex for their depth of their commitment, spirited worship, and strength of their affirmation of a common tradition. New religions or cults are therefore not defined by any characteristics that they share, but by their tension with the dominant religion. The media portrayal of Jonestown represents a prime example of mainstream society extrapolating the culture of one cult to the term as a whole. Jonestown was an American cult in North Guyana under the leadership of Jim Jones. Jim Jones established the group formerly known as the People's Temple and moved his followers to a remote area in Guyana. He was a heavy drug user and was convinced that he was powerful and godly. His followers in Guyana were not free to leave. When the U.S. government found out about this in 1978, Jim Jones forced his followers to drink juice laced with cyanide. Hundreds of people died. Jim Jones was notoriously violent and used sexually charged methods to influence his followers. His leadership tactics were picked up by the media and broadcasted in a way that exploited cult deviants from societal norms. Two dominant images of Jones were portrayed on television, images of Jones and his life and cult leader characters modeled after him. The film Guyana Tragedy opens by stating, this is his story, and continues on to recount images of his religious extremism, drug addiction, sexual escapades, and financial misdeeds. The massive amount of media coverage on this massacre reinforced stereotypes about all cult leaders and their propensity for violence. Scholars have examined the publicity of the Jonestown incident and labeled the People's Temple the archetypal cult in American culture with three major symbols, charisma, isolation, and poison. Before the 70s, the term cult remained majorly uncharged in American culture. Following Jonestown, however, an anti-cult movement was bolstered and cult experts, also known as deprogrammers, began cropping up looking to save any deviant family members. The anti-cult movement centered around charismatic leaders and their deluded followers, all who needed to be saved even against their will. Since this elevated scrutiny on cults has arisen, journalists have been feigning to publish stories about minority religions and to tie everything back to the destruction caused at Jonestown. All negative generalizations about minority religions have been legitimized. Perhaps consistent with this animosity towards minority religions is the spike in personal spirituality. Along with the anti-cult movement beginning in the 70s, economic historian Robert Fogel identified a fourth great awakening in which a decline in mainline Protestantism gave rise to numerous new movements. Often these movements moved counter to traditional political standings. This seems consistent with reluctance to accept any established leadership as found in the anti-cult movement. A specific example of this growing suspicion of establishment, especially by young people, was the satanic panic of the 1980s. During this time, a number of rumors were spread about the teachers at McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. Children and parents believed teachers at the preschool were Satanists. The teachers were accused of molesting children and performing satanic rituals on them. Eventually, the rumors were exposed as being completely untrue and unfounded. Modern-day witch hunts, such as the one at McMartin Preschool, signify the danger and suspicion without a basis in fact. Suspicion just for the sake of suspicion. On the other hand of the spectrum, some groups are truly toxic and require a watchful eye and intervention. 
The Remnant Fellowship Church was founded by Christian diet guru Gwen Shamblin. The church drew quite the controversy when one member received punishment for opening his eyes during prayer, joking with other adults, and even sneezing. In truth, cults are only labeled as such because of their deviance from societal norms. These societal norms, however, are established by entities that began very much like cults. Religions promise things like reincarnation and transubstantiation. Many of the major religions also promise these things based on sexual restrictions and immoral standards. Using sex to motivate the actions of church members has echoes of some of the happenings of Jonestown. Jonestown and major religions may have this in common, but many would argue that the end result proves to be much different. The foundation of religion typically gives people a moral compass, but who's to say this moral compass is superior? Teachings of religion are given legitimacy through time, but with three major religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all having conflicting ideas about the true course of history, how legitimate can each of these really be? Choosing a foundation for your moral compass, something that will dictate your actions every day, is not something to be taken lightly. We encourage you to look deeply into any new or old religion or so-called cult, and find something you resonate with completely. With globalization and growing communication technology, access to understanding the foundation for ways of living has never been easier. We'd all be pretty lucky if our soul resonates perfectly with the major religion in our family or our hometown. In the 1960s, J. Melton Yinger defined a cult as a small, short-lived group with deviant beliefs and practices and focused on a dominant leader. This definition matches a variety of cult textbook definitions. However, before the 1970s, topics of cult and sect were fairly benign and this definition wasn't challenged. Geoffrey Nelson, who worked on the spiritualist tradition, pointed out that the new religions of the 70s and 80s did not match Yinger's definition. The role of the charismatic leader was thus powerful. The new religious movements or cults of the 1970s and 80s were offshoots of older religious groups and tended to resemble their parent group far more than each other. For example, the International Society of Krishna Consciousness resembles other Vaishnava Hindu groups. Nelson noted that new religions were not single generation phenomena, but a part of continuously evolving societies. These movements arise as recent versions of older religions. Every religious movement began at a scale that could have been considered a cult in the context of its time period. So then, if leadership and danger are not consistent, how do we define people's belief systems? In general, someone's belief system is defined by the dominant belief system. New religions are assigned to the status of fringe by more dominant religious cultures. In general, societal norms are established by secular culture and the primary religion. American society is a perfect example. Our societal and governmental structure is modeled after the Constitution, a purely secular document. And yet Christianity, the primary religion, dictates our political and behaviors deemed appropriate by general society. This became evident in the 1980s when anti-cult initiatives were introduced into state legislature based on this principle. 